Today's episode of Baxi's Musical Podcast is brought to you by the folks at Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts, with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. In fact, they're not just a dispensary, they're a destination. Visit CannaProvisions.com, CannaProvisions.com. Adults 21, please, and please consume responsibly. And now, today's episode of Baxi's Musical Podcast. Rexy's musical podcast. When people think about some of the greatest guitar players who have ever lived throughout the world, they often think about guys like Eddie Van Halen or Jimi Hendrix for obvious reasons, of course. But not every brilliant guitar player is there to amaze you with their technical skills and blinding speed. Sometimes the most brilliant guitar players in history don't worry so much about that sort of thing. Sometimes they express their brilliance by doing what's right for the song. Sometimes they save their creativity and their genius to do things within the context of a song that makes other guitar players say things like, holy shit, what did that guy just do? That's the kind of guitar player that we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about the career of the late John McGeoch. Between 1978 and 1992, John McGeoch was considered to be one of, if not the, most innovative and creative guitar players in the world. In fact, he has sometimes been known as the Jimmy Page of the post-punk era. His recordings and live performances with Howard DeVoto of Magazine, Visage, Susie and the Banshees, Generation X with Billy Idol, and later with John Lydon and Public Image Limited are still some of the most stunning pieces of pure musicianship of all time. And it was this sort of craftsmanship that inspired guys like The Edge from U2 or John Frusciante from the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Johnny Marr from the Smiths. And all of these guys will readily admit that they learned more from the late John McGeoch than perhaps any other guitar player in history. And if you don't believe me, Listen to songs like Shot by Both Sides or Because You Are Frightened by Magazine. Listen to Spellbound or the song Monitor by Susie and the Banshees off the album Juju. These aren't just great songs. These were genre-defining performances by a guy who couldn't possibly receive the credit that he deserved. There's a wonderful new biography that's just been released entitled The Light Pours Out of Me, the authorized biography of John McGeoch by Rory Sullivan Burke. It's a beautifully written and fascinating look into the life the career, and the struggles of one of music's unsung heroes. The book is fantastic, and the author of the book, Rory Sullivan Burke, is my guest today on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Good to see you. Likewise, man. How you keeping? All right. Not too bad. I got to ask you right off the bat, how does a guy from England find themselves to be a Boston Celtics fan? How does that happen? Right, yeah. Um, no, it, I think the whole basketball thing for me started when I was a kid in the 90s, and it was Jordan, really, right. kind of sold the game to me. But I didn't want to follow that traditional thing of being like the successful team. And Boston sucked at the time. You know, the <laughs> 90s was not a, great, not a great period. We've had our ups and downs. All those championships and some, some pretty freaking awful years in between. So, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. But then the history you know, the heritage, um, you know, you look at the players that have been there, you know, and then we had, well, I think it, things changed when we got Pierce, 
when we got uh, KG yep. and suddenly there was just this character and this fight and desire and it just, yeah, I've loved them. That's loved awesome. Them, so. Well, you're back into a good year. I mean, they're, they're playing great right now, although you know, Robert Williams got hurt with the meniscus tears. He's, they're saying a couple of weeks out for him. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but. But I'm glad uh, I'm glad you're on the home team, even from a, several thousand miles away. That's great. Who my uh, who my NFL team is? I think that might cause uh, maybe a few more tensions. I don't know. I don't uh, know. I'm, I'm guessing you're a Patriots fan. Yeah, but I'm actually more of a Green Bay fan. I spent a number of years in in uh, Wisconsin and and uh, got to go to a good share of games and and always have been a, a Packer fan because when I was a kid in the '70s. The Patriots were god awful, right. and I grew up with me like you know twenty five, maybe thirty miles out of out of Foxborough, and it was just always a painful experience. And so uh, they only got good uh, as I got older. Anyway, listen, uh, congratulations on this book. I, I was uh, I was so excited to read it, and I think the reason why is it is a story that really has never been properly told. I mean, a lot of people know who John uh, McGeeock may be, but the reality is he is a mystery to a lot of people especially here in the States where I don't think magazine played in the same way as it may have in the UK and Susie too, for that map, it didn't necessarily have the same uh, impact here as it did over there. But you know, many years later, when you listen to just the genius of this guy, you wonder why it's taken so long for this story to be told. What, what was it that motivated you to, to, to write this book and in, in, in about John McGeeock's life? Precisely um, what you're saying there. Um, it all started really. I mean, I've been, I just love post-punk music, if, if you want to use that term, magazine. And that was my first introduction to John in the late 90s. Um, yeah. I got to hear shot by both sides on one of those god-awful compilation uh, things like the best of punk or whatever. Um, <laughs> and I was just blown away by it. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I kept rewinding the tape, listening to it again and again. But I think with, with John in particular, I was, um, I was traveling down. It was, um, so August, 2020, um, we'd obviously, you know, been in lockdown, um, since March, things had started to ease a bit. And I was on a train journey down to see my daughter for the first time in God, six months or however long it had been. Um, and listening to a bit of the Banshees on the way and thinking, I'd love to read a book about John. And I thought there's got to be something, there has to be something. So I did a little, you know, search on, on my phone and, uh, and there wasn't. And for some reason, and I'm still not exactly sure why, I just thought, well, why not do it yourself? Um, you want to read about this guy, so why not write the book that you want to read? And I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a fine idea. Um, and then... You know, I wanted to go about it the right way. So the first port of call really was to contact his daughter um, via social media just to make sure that she, you know, would be okay with it and that she knew that it was coming from a good place. So that's that's kind of how that happened, you know. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly where good biography should start. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, unauthorized biographies out there that, that are, I mean, they're sensationalized. A lot of it's not detailed or, or accurate. But to have the family involved for the very first time, I mean, what was their reaction to to you talking to them? They must have felt like that John McGeeock's life has been ignored in a lot of ways. They must have been grateful that you tried to take this on. Yeah, I think, um, it, it was, you know, I, I look back on it and think, wow, because when I spoke to Emily that first time and I said, look, I'd like to do this, um, how do you feel? And she was just really like supportive from the get go. She was like, yeah, 
you know, you, you, you do that. You, 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 you know, let me know. And she gave me some kind of, you know, don't go harassing people. Don't go, you know, and which I wouldn't have done anyway, but she was totally behind it. Um, I think maybe half expecting that nothing would really come of it, that it might just, I might just be some kind of fantasist and kind of thinking, oh yeah. Um, but as soon as she gave me that green light, then I went ahead and, and just contacted people. But I think, yeah, there definitely is that. I mean, John, not just by his family, but I think acknowledged by by fans and by other musicians, um, is that he has been um, sort of overlooked in a way and, and almost, I wouldn't say forgotten about, but just not given the, the recognition and credit that his, you know, talent really deserves and his influence, you know. All it was was just to say, I think as things started to progress and as more and more people got on board with it, I think then she could really, you know, she could see that this thing was growing and that it was serious and that, you know, I was obviously committed to doing it and I wanted to do it well and I wanted to do it, you know, with integrity. So that was the, the big thing. What I liked about the book is you're getting a lot of first person accounts of you know not only his musicianship because I mean you could talk about that all all day but you've also got a real three dimensional look at John McGee the human being and that this was not just a, a a guy who was not just a guy who had you know maybe a drinking problem during his career but this is a guy who was who showed kindness and showed uh, a humility and at the same time came up with these brilliant guitar parts for these classic songs and some of them you know you just go back and you listen to it again and you say wait a minute did he just do what i think he did or or you know did he what was that i was listening to into the light from juju from Susie and the banshees just the other day and that was like one of those songs it's not even my favorite song on the album but it's one of those songs that when you hear him playing you're going jesus how did he come up with that with everybody you talk to about just how astounded they are by the creativity of of this guy. And when it comes to talking about guitar gods, it's usually like a lot of flash and a lot of notes as opposed to serving the song. And you address that a number of times in the book. And that may have been the thing that separates him from nearly everybody else at the time. Oh yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think one of the really interesting things that came out of that when I was speaking to people who were involved with John at the time and who were heavily involved in what had happened prior to the post-punk movement with punk saying that he was already so adept by the time you know that he burst onto the scene he knew what he was doing he was a skilled skilled player and he couldn't hide that and neither did he want to hide that um, which is why a band like magazine who was so experimental who was so different left field you know than, than anything else really was just perfect for him a perfect vehicle for him to kind of express what he had which was uniquely his and his alone. Um, but the interesting thing I think about that period anyway, in general, is that you had the whole punk thing, which was very much the no more guitar heroes, <laughs> you know, and those kind of traditional licks and extended solos and all the rest of it were kind of just thrown to the side. But yet with the whole kind of post-punk thing, you then had really, really creative guitarists and, I, and a lot of them, you know, coming out of Britain as well at that time. Um, <clears throat> so you had the likes of Keith Levine, uh, you had uh, Vinnie Riley of Dorothy Column, another great <laughs> player, uh, Geordie Walker, Killing Joke. You know, there was all these guys who really had their own voice. But I think for John, I think what's, what's telling is that he was just a natural artist. He was a creative. I mean, he'd gone um, up to Manchester to study fine art. You know, he had that kind of that kind of mind, I think, that allowed him to really 
you know, express himself differently. I've always thought it was kind of funny, you know, when you look back at the at the history of punk, uh, you know, certainly in the UK, even in the States for that matter, because I don't think the New York scene was any was really any different. You know, it all started off with the idea that anybody could do this, even with the most rudimentary knowledge of music. And the problem is anytime you grab an instrument and you keep playing it over and over again, you unfortunately get better. And eventually the bands that promoted this no guitar heroes type of approach, you know, they all got better. The clash got better over, over time, even creatively, you can make a really good argument that, that pill was probably in the long run as innovative and uh, inspirational to people as the sex pistols were. They just, it just all mm-hmm. de- depends on your perspective. And all of those musicians from Keith Levine to Joe Wobble, became great musicians as their careers went on. And I think that's the, I think you're right. That's the difference between John McGeoch is, you know, here's a guy that burst into this whole thing, almost already formed. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, he was ready. Um, and, and, and musically, it was just a case of being in the right place at the right time with the right skill set to really, you know, um, do something that's, that's like you said, I mean, it is one of those things in a way it's kind of niche and he doesn't get the recognition he deserves. But then when you, when you hear it and when you really listen to it, or when you introduce people who aren't familiar with it, they even recognize and say, do you know what? This guy's bloody good. You know, he really does stand out. He stands out sometimes. It's weird for not standing out. If you know what I mean, he's got that, there's a, there's a, there's a, a classiness to his playing. He's not a showboater. He's not somebody who's all about, look at me, look how wonderful I am. But he's, he's a very intelligent player, you know? There's a part of the book, which I actually think is probably the most interesting part, and it's, it's, it's right after John meets Howard DeVoto. Howard DeVoto had left the Buzzcocks by this point, and they're talking about starting a band and they're getting ready to, to put magazine together. And there's this building anticipation of people wanting to know what Howard DeVoto is going to come up with. What is magazine going to be? And by the time it actually arrives and real life is, is released, there was such excitement about the idea that this band was going to come together. I don't think people in the United States have a real grasp of Howard DeVoto. And I certainly don't think they have any real grasp of anything prior to, you know, singles going steady by the Buzzcocks and the importance of that band, historically speaking to me, that's a really important part of the book and it really lays the groundwork for McGeoch's entire career. It certainly does. It certainly does. Um, you know, Howard is a, a bit of an enigma really, you know, as, as a, and, and, and the whole thing about him leaving Buzzcocks as well, you know, that sort of sent shockwaves uh, for the time, certainly I think in Manchester, um, because they were just on the cusp of something, you know, they'd, they'd released Spiral Scratch, which was such an important release. And he'd sort of just, said, no, no, this isn't for me. Um, so with Magazine, yeah, there was a lot of anticipation. And I think as well, it just, I think you couldn't have wished for a better for a better debut single than Shot by Both Sides. I mean, it's just, and interestingly, you know, we have to be honest, it's a Buzzcocks hand-me-down. You know, if you listen to the song Lipstick, you know, whatever, it's, it's, it's all there. But it's John's way of playing it, I think, that really gives it that edge and, and has made it such an enduring uh, song to this day. It still sounds great, you know. It still sounds great, but it, it's not my favorite song of the album, believe it or not. My favorite song of the album is the title of your book, The Light Pours Out of Me. There's, there's a part in that song where the solo comes in, you know, later on in the song. 
it's not a complicated song. It's it's not necessarily something that shows, like you say, this virtuosity, but it's just the perfect guitar part, and it's phenomenal. I mean, that's of all the songs that Magazine has done, and, and there were plenty of them, that's the one for me that, that just still resonates after all these years. I just think it's so... It's it's such a powerful buildup. Yeah, no, wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, it's it, and I think there's kind. Of, I'm working on a, on a number of levels with with the title of the book. Yes, I love the song, um, and I think it does. It shows John, you know, in one of his you know real kind of creative peaks. Um, but it's also the the fact that the light being John as well, and as you get to understand yep. about his personality. That's, you know, I'm getting at that as well with it, because like you said yourself, you know, he 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 was a, an amazing man, a, you know, a fascinating character, you know, highly intelligent, um, but very, very giving and very warm. And I think that was something as well that I felt was important that kind of came across with this book as much as, you know, the technical side of his playing. When you approach people to talk about him, I mean, there are a couple of people that, that I don't know if they just chose not to participate or we're not available. Howard DeVoto would be one, like you say, is an enigma. He's like one of those guys that that's really, really hard to approach, really hard to uh, to talk to. And the other one would be, would be John Lydon, who is not always an easy interview and can be, you know, very temperamental. Both of them can, but neither one of them seemed to participate very much uh, with this. Was there a reason why that did you? You, I assume, you must have attempted to approach them. Well, I approached, I mean, I spoke with Howard um, and, you know, he's, he's obviously he's there, um, but it's, it was, a, yeah, I mean, it was, it, that was a nerve wracking interview. I mean, that was kind of because you, you, you're, you're speaking to people that you've admired for so long and then you build that kind, you put people on a pedestal as well. So sometimes, you know, conversations can, can be hindered, I think, a little bit by that, you know, and maybe that was my own fanboy kind of thing coming across. But I think what he, you know, he did, what I respected about what Howard brought to the book was there, there was an honesty there and and he did admit that he found John I think on a personal uh, sort of level difficult to get on with there was obviously a clash of personalities there they were very different John was a very strong character you know um, had his own mind knew what he wanted and I think maybe at times and I don't know I mean I'm just guessing maybe you know Howard felt a little bit threatened by that perhaps and you know that you've got you know, you've got you've got these two competing forces within the band. But of course, like he says himself, it's not always unusual for the singer and the lead guitarist to have that bit of friction. That, but he, you know, he what what he gave to the book, I felt was was honest. I'd say that it was honest. The part where John joins uh, Susie and the Banshees. I mean, the guy could have played with anybody at that point between his work with the uh, with magazine of Visage and and and, and really. Uh, I think even by that point, I don't know if he had played with Generation X or if that was still yet to come. The the timeline's eluding me a little bit. But nevertheless, he could have joined any band in the U.K. and chose Susie and the Banshees. At, you know, at first thought, you know, it seems like a good idea. But then when you hear what came into Kaleidoscope and what came into Juju, those two albums alone, you say, you know that band had had always had him in it, even though, even though that's 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 not the case, and they were kind of uh, you know gutted by two previous members leaving. But the the synergy of that band, him joining, is is pretty remarkable with those two records. Oh, without doubt. I mean, I, 
it kind of it was it was like it was something that just was meant to be i think because the the power i mean you look at the i think mark Calm, you know put it quite beautifully when he, he talked about the john's impact on on the songs on kaleidoscope and saying that he felt that that album was was a great collection of songs but when you get to juju it's it's a band you're really hearing a yeah. band who know each other and have worked with each other and understand the strengths within you know one one another um but yeah i mean those are just phenomenal i mean and you think to the point where you get to Juju and that is just such, um, I mean, for me, that's my, I would probably put that right up there with, let's say the correct use of soap by a magazine, uh, pink flag by wire mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and Juju, you know, we're talking that caliber of album. And, and how do you then, how do you follow that up? Because it's every song on that album delivers. It's, it's, it's brilliant. There's a, a large part of the book that that talks specifically about his alcoholism and about his chemical dependencies as as time goes on. Do you think he felt pressure after a Juju, after a Kaleidoscope, after spending three records with Magazine? Do you think he felt the pressure from within himself to keep motivated to continue that level of creativity? Because I mean, I know for some people, and I've certainly interviewed uh, you know enough where you get to a certain point where you have so much success that it winds up breeding a lot of self-doubt. You know, can I continue this? Have I, have I, have I lasted too much? Have I, you know, you know, exhausted the well of creativity? He had a lot left, left in him, but do you think that had a, a part of why he felt the need to escape some of his, his demons through alcohol? Possibly so. Um, it's, you see, that's, was one of the difficult things with the book because sadly john's you know he's not with us and um you know you you then try and build a picture from speaking with people that did know him and and, and particularly at that time i my instinct would tell me that he was burning out i think i think he was finding the touring and and the banshees in particular were a group they were relentless. I mean, it was in the studio, record the album, promote the album, tour the album, back in the studio, and the, the cycle just kept going and going. And I think John was a very sensitive soul, you know, and I think a lot of musicians talk about how difficult actually they find the whole touring process, you know, because you're away from home and you're, you know, and, and probably it can be a lonely place for musicians at times. And then, you know, that 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 era that that kind of you know alcohol drugs being freely available it becomes maybe a bit of a an escapism from that so I, I definitely think the touring at that point was was catching up with him. The story of uh, the Banshees in Madrid was a really sad story because it sounded like, I mean, you could look at it from a number of different ways. You could say that you know some of this was like a like a self induced problem that uh, that he cultivated with his abuse issues, but that there were also outside forces that made it worse in particular in Madrid, where that seemed to kind of do him in for a good period of time. When you talk to people who were there, it, it's, it just sounds like there's a real sense of disappointment, not in him, but just in just of the, of the circumstance that, that surrounded that. Tell me about about the importance of of what happened in Madrid. Well, yeah, I mean, so they'd finished recording uh, "Kiss in the Dream House," which was the follow up album to Juju, 
um, and they'd been preparing. Um, they were going to have an extensive tour, but they were preparing with some warm-up shows, and, and they'd done. They'd been to Milan, um, and they'd done a show in Cornwall, England, and they flew out to Madrid, uh, um, sort of over the Halloween period of, of '82, to do these two gigs. And John just, you know, he turned up in a really, really bad place. Um, you know, he was he by his own admittance to to his um, guitar tech he, he he acknowledged that he was having something of a breakdown you know at that point and and he he really he just wasn't the john mcgeoch that, that they knew and loved you know and it was clearly that he was yes he was he was he was drinking heavily but it was also i think i think there was there was possibly i mean some 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 depression as well that was mm -hmm. fueling it um, I, I don't know again how he, the impression I got maybe was that he'd felt a little bit, and I don't want to say ostracized, that's not the right word, but maybe, maybe he was feeling again, a bit, a bit, maybe pushed out, um, in a, in a way on the recording for a kiss in the dream house, Robert Smith from the cure was, was, was about a lot. And he was by that time was good friends with, with Stephen Severin, um, the bass player. Whereas John and Stephen had always had a really close relationship. So maybe he was starting to question as well his role. Um, and if you listen to the guitar playing on A Kiss in the Dream House, it's not as to the to the fore as say with Juju. And I think maybe he 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 was questioning at that point as well about how how much longer he would last in the band or how how much longer he would actually want to stay. But the, the main concern was that he turned up and he just wasn't in a fit state to to go on stage and 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 it, it, it fell apart terribly for him and it, it is very sad and it, it was one of the i think it was one of the big question marks i had when i approached the book i really wanted to know how does something that creative that special just end i'd never really had a kind of conclusive answer to that and and that was something that i really wanted to sort of look at but again as sensitively as, as I could, you know? Well, it, it may be one of those things where there really is no clear-cut answer, that it's like a confluence of different situations. You know, a lot of artists go through a creative block where they just, you know, they just feel depleted. And it's the pressure of touring and the schedule and the, the pressures both internally within a band and outside of a band. I think that happens a lot more than we might think. And that may be one of the reasons why there are so many artists that wind up relying on on drugs or alcohol because it's the only thing that they can feel is to not feel the pain and just anesthetize themselves so they may not have to deal with it in a healthier way i mean i don't, I don't know if there's any relevance to that but i think that sounds to me like what he was going through no absolutely absolutely um and i think it, that was it and it all came crashing down for him at that point and 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 unfortunately he he was out of the band you know but he needed i think at that point you know he needed a break i think they all did and i think by their own admittance you know they needed to just put the brakes on you know but that wasn't happening at, and there possibly weren't the people around the group to sort of really take care of them properly because they were young you know these are young people and and and, and how much can we expect of them to then take care of them when you know, they've, they've not had the life experience themselves by that point, really, you know? The one and only time that I got to see John play was it was in uh, Pill, was in Public Image. And this would have been, I think, like 1989, somewhere around there. And I remember watching John uh, play and thinking, my God, this guy is great. But not having 
the context of one who he was all, all i could say is this guy was a great guitar player and not really having the knowledge of his of his history having said that watching him play it was very clear that this guy was a phenomenal talent and the show was i mean the show was was great and everything i expected it to be but it just seems like you know if you were going if if you were going to leave a band where you had some problems in, in the end, like the way he had with, with the, the Banshees. And then you go into a band with John Lydon. I mean, I realized Lydon wanted him in the band for years before that, before he actually became a part of a public image. But you know, if there's a polarizing individual that could make it difficult for somebody who is struggling, John Lydon might be that guy. And I didn't get the sense that, uh, that you addressed that, very much. I think I think you kind of skirted around the difficulty of John Lydon's personality. You know, he's either going to be participating with you or he is not. And he can kind of go either way in either direction, sometimes within the same minute or so. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that gets back to your point that you asked before about Howard and, 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 and Mr. Lydon. And, and it's a case of if somebody wasn't involved in, 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 the, in the book um, and didn't then it's like, well, I kind of like people to have their say, you know, and I like them to give their opinion of what was going on. I think, yeah, we, we can look at it from the outside, knowing the kind of personalities, knowing, you know, and thinking, yeah, okay, like you said, that's going to be, that's going to be some trip. And to go into that is probably not going to be easy for anybody, you know, because, you know, as much as, as Leiden cultivated, obviously his own stage persona but it was also backed up by i think you know he's a feisty character and mm -hmm. and, and and but so was john you know mcgeoch was nobody's fool um and would give as good as he got to anybody and he would speak his mind to anybody. it doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what your reputation was you know john would would, would let you know if you were out of line or if he disagreed with you or, or whatever it may be so yeah i think there i think that was probably again but you, know, you see, the interesting thing is John was somebody who was working. He was used to working with big personalities. I mean, he yeah. worked with Susie, worked with Severin. You know, he worked with Richard Jobson um, in the Armory Show, another big character. Uh, you know, Russell Webb, a good friend of his. And, that, you know, th th these were all people who could hold their own and weren't backward in coming forward. So John didn't shy away from that. Um, but I think I think the big, the big problem or issue with Pill was that musically by that point, it, maybe it was it was just starting to get um what's the word i'm looking for it was just starting to lose the edge i mean the, the thing with pill is and, and and i'm speaking personally here anyway the pill that i love really if i'm being honest is early pill it's the keith levine jar wobble stuff i mean that's really what i think of when i feel but having said that they didn't stagnate and john lydon had the he had the nous to realize that you know in order to be keep being creative or to keep being relevant you have to freshen it up you can't just keep treading along unless you're somebody like slayer who i love but you know you can't just stick to the same pattern right you know, things have to um have to change and things move on and he was you know he he would work with wonderful musicians i mean album for example you know ginger baker, baker was on yeah. there you know another big character um and so he was he, yeah he had that he had that and he knew that john was somebody who could bring it and bring something different and he did you know and 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 he took he i think mcgeoch in pill kind of took them to that stadium rock kind of vibe but it also sounds like mm -hmm. and you mentioned this in the book that at that time 
that's kind of what John McGeeock kind of wanted at that point. Like he he wanted to be more of a stadium band and to do or to be a, a like a stadium level presence. It's possible that he just didn't feel like he was getting the respect that he he felt that his playing deserved. And and you know the, at the time in the eighties, what better way is there than to I don't want to say sell out because I don't think that's entirely true, but to be a little bit more commercial friendly. And I think that's one of the problems that a lot of people had with Pill in those last uh, few albums, that it wasn't uh, it wasn't Metal Box, and it wasn't the first record, and it wasn't even uh, Flowers of Romance. Or, it, wasn't, it wasn't that. It, it, it morphed into something more hit-friendly. Yeah, and I, again, it was the time, wasn't it, where MTV was starting to kick into gear, you know, and the, the music video was becoming a big deal. And I think maybe in a way, I mean, Alan Diaz sort of said this, you know, that, that what Pill were doing by that point, you know, it was... It was Maybe it was it was appealing more to an American audience, certainly more than say Susie had done or or magazine with John. You know, they, they, I think Pill were, were maybe, you know, maybe more respected in America and, and in Japan um, than they were domestically by that point. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting period. I think what I, what I take from it as well is it's it's something that wasn't as immediately. Um, approachable or as enjoyable as say magazine or Susie but when I gave it time and when I really started to sit down and listen to those albums and listen to what John was doing then I thought ah, okay I can see it you know I can really see what he was trying to do and and just how important he was to that whole that whole era for Pill. I think when you listen to uh, to Happy the first album that he was on you can you can hear flashes of that creativity in him maybe not so much in uh, in the album 9 but 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 certainly in in uh, and happy, I hear it. And seeing him play it live, I'm like, okay, well, this guy's this guy's pretty phenomenal. But again, I wish I wish at the time in 1989 I had the the history in my head and say, oh my God, that's John McGeeock. I, I didn't even realize that who it was until you know Lydon introduced the band, and, and he didn't always do that. So, but that in hindsight, what a thrill to have seen him because so many people simply had not, and so many people simply don't know who he is, and he is a guy who is definitely worth going out and, and reconsidering this this brilliant music. Yeah, and I think, yeah, definitely. I think one of the big things as well, it's telling that so many people that are, are huge players and are hugely admired and respected, and, you know, you're thinking Johnny Marr, you're thinking John Frusciante, you know, these people who've got real real pedigree and, 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 and kind of commercial viability um, speak so highly of him speaks so so highly of John McGeeock's work and how influential it was yeah. uh, and hopefully for people maybe maybe younger people as well who are not familiar but are really into like the, the Chili Peppers or into the Smiths or into any of the sort of solo work that Johnny's done Radiohead again another you know yep. um, that they will think well okay if this guy influenced my hero maybe he's worth checking out and I hope that I, I that's what I really hope that people just discover his music and, and fall in love with it like I did and, and like yourself, you well, know, so. Well, like I said, it was a, a real joy to read the book because it was it was something I really wanted to, to learn more about. And I think you did a beautiful job with it. But moving ahead, now that this book is done, do you have any thoughts about what you might do next? Would there be another book and, or another biography or are you looking to do promote this one for now? I think for now it's it's a case of, yeah, I've, I've got a job to do with John with John. You know, I've got things that I want to see through because this is just I, I see the book really as a catalyst to hopefully just get get more stuff going 
Um, in the longer term, yeah, I, I've, I've, you know, it's been such an absolute joy. This whole thing, I mean, when you put it in the perspective of lockdowns and all the stress, and obviously I'm a care worker, that's my job, you know, it's what yeah. I do. Um, so to get this opportunity to speak with all these wonderful people and to, to learn about the man behind the rifts has just been such a pleasure. So I definitely want to continue to write um you know and, and and expand on that but this has just been a, it's just been an honor really I, I can't put it any other way well i read a lot of these kinds of books and i've read some biographies that are just dreadfully dry because they it's really just more of an academic approach but the way you handle this book i think is really admirable and for someone who may not have the international accolades that they probably deserve you really bring a real human approach to this guy and i i have to thank you for that because i think what you've done is really remarkable well thank you that's incredibly kind of you to say so and and um i'm just yeah i'm, I'm very very grateful well rory i i appreciate the time today best of luck with the book i hope it does very very well brilliant listen thank you so much really really appreciate it once again the name of the book is the light pours out of me by rory sullivan burke it really is a great biography Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to share it, rate it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And also thanks to the folks at Canon Provisions. You can check them out at canonprovisions.com. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.